So let us pray. Holy God, as we exist in the tension between what is and what should be, as events open our eyes to pervasive injustice and oppression, give us the strength of our calling to live for you and to love our neighbors in ways that spread justice and equity and peace. And in the stillness of this hour, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. The girl fled the gym floor. A stunt had gone wrong at the state dance competition and there were bruises, and then there was the emotional pain. She fled all those who might blame her and was angry with all of those who were saying, it's all good, when it wasn't. Her tears were a river. She was inconsolable. Asaph, our psalmist, is inconsolable. He is wrapped up in his misery, stretching out prayers to God that go unanswered until sleepless night after sleepless night, he is voiceless and without words. Troubled speech fails him, and all that is left are the tears. Something in Asaph's world has changed some cataclysmic shift that leaves this poet to question all that is known about God. The lament rises up, and the power of these words, and indeed the power of all of the psalms of lament, is that they speak the truth of grief and pain. The words sing out with the full, raw power of human anguish, lifting up our grief and confronting those things in our lives and in our worlds that should not be, that do not make sense. And in capturing what becomes our grief, Asaph captures the way that that grief disorients us and pushes us into liminal space where we ask questions of God, questions that we all wanted to ask at one moment or another. Has God's steadfast love ceased forever? Are God's promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has God, in anger, shut up the wells of compassion? A young white man attends a Bible study at a historic African-American church and kills nine people. God, where are you? A young Arab-American enters a gay nightclub and begins a shooting spree that ends with 50 deaths, including his own. Lord, how long? Armed conflicts rage in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Somalia, Pakistan, Libya, Yemen, Sudan, South Sudan, and a dozen other places. My God, where are you? Multiple shootings have marked our Rochester streets this week. Lord, how long? 16 million children in America are food insecure. 
one in five of all children, and one in three children of color. Merciful God, where are you? And 16,000 children under age five will die in the world today of mostly preventable causes. And we cry out, how long, O Lord, how long? These are the questions of theodicy. The questions that ask if our God of love and graciousness and compassion has the power to intercede in the brokenness that is our world today. Walter Brueggemann would have us understand that these questions don't stand alone. That they bear three dimensions. That there is religious crisis that we're hearing. That there is social crisis that we have yet to respond to and that there is revolutionary action that is needed. The religious crisis begins as we try to sort out the true character of God. Now the psalmist here today is speaking out of some sort of religious convention. He prays and he lifts those prayers so that God will listen to me. And the I language of those first six verses is striking. You can open your Psalter back up. I cry, I seek, I think, I moan, I meditate, I consider, I remember, and it culminates in a raw statement. I commune with my heart in the night, I meditate and search my spirit. We understand the impulse to hand-wringing, but is that really prayer? With all of the I language of the first six verses, can't we hear the unspoken question, God, what about me? Brueggemann writes that the speaker has grown comfortable with the great affirmations of Yahweh because the great affirmations have readily translated into self-serving assurance. But now that is all being blown out of the water and the desperate rhetorical questions appear as the speaker begins to guess that his old, sure, certain religion is collapsing. And not only is the old religion collapsing, but the social order in which it is upheld is collapsing, revealing that what was once order is now disorder that what was once acceptable is now not the way that things are supposed to be. God, where are you? Lord, how long? And pat explanations and assurances and condolences fail, and the grief is inconsolable. The girl escaped to a dressing room and remained huddled in a corner. And I watched as another dancer approached her. The dancer didn't say anything but simply sat down and put her arms around her weeping friend and then joined her in her tears. And there they remained, huddled together until the tears stopped. 
There are some biblical commentators that have speculated that Psalm 77 is really two psalms divided neatly after verse 10. A psalm of lament, which we've heard, and a psalm of praise, which we've also heard, and that might make it easier to understand this psalm, but the language and the pattern of words and phrases and repetition are clearly part of a single whole. The voice of Asaph cries out, is inconsolable, asks desperate questions, and then something happens in verse 10. And the truth is, the Hebrew is obscure and the verse is hard to translate so that we can hear the attempts of modern translators who've rendered the verse as we heard it this morning. It is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. Or the New King James, this is my anguish, but I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. Or this is what wounds me. The right hand of the Most High has lost its strength from the New Jerusalem Bible. Or from my favorite translator, Robert Alter, it is my failing that the High One's right hand has changed. The High One's right hand has changed. Brueggemann challenges us to hear something in it. That if one is linked to a flat, one-dimensional faith, then this verse, verse 10, is about the bitter loss of faith. But if we think in terms of obedience on its way to risky imagination, then this verse is an opening for new faith beyond the conventions and the routines which secure but do not reckon with God's all-fullness. His all-fullness. I'll try to get that past my Texas accent. The psalmist leads his congregation to the crossroad of bitter loss and risky imagination. But the song of Asaph does not leave them there. Into the disorientation, it sings words that reorient the people to God, to God who is creator and redeemer, the God who is comfort and strength, who leads the people along paths of justice and righteousness. It reclaims us to ourselves. I spent time this past Wednesday with more than 80 advocates, activists, and spiritual leaders at Asbury First United Methodist Church. We gathered to hear Shelley Tucklock as she engaged us with materials from a new book living in the tension, the quest for a spiritualized racial justice. She talked about the tensions that arise as we try to live out of our highest values of equity and justice and pursue lasting reforms and do them from different social locations. There's a caricature, the caricature of the angry and wounded advocate whose language 
is antagonistic and divisive, even with the advocate's allies. And there's a caricature of spiritual people who seek kumbaya moments and ignore their own roles in an unjust status quo. And I'll tell you, those were certainly the tensions in my small group. As words of an ethereal spirituality floated into the conversation, one of our advocates demanded to know what that spirituality meant because he didn't understand whatever this was. So I offered with some trepidation a halting definition that spirituality is one connect, one's connection to a higher power that we call God, that cultivates us to connect with others in ways that reflect God's justice and righteousness, and that the dimensions are vertical and horizontal, and that there is not one without the other. I understand kumbaya moments. I understand wrapping arms around someone until the tears have stopped, but when we are wounded, Kumbaya cannot be the end. We must stand ready to bear the anger and wounds, the oppressed, by the power of God. Shelley was asked why perceived tensions between spirituality and racial justice matter. She responded, there's a vast potential of untapped transformative power that is waiting to be released. I'll say that again, a vast potential of untapped transformative power waiting to be released. It's waiting for us to connect and waiting for us to get over ourselves. Brueggemann would remind us as we ask the question, where is God and Lord, how long we are responding to the growing awareness that our theodicy has to enter the social sphere it's got to question the legitimacy of present division of power and goods. And it must lead us into faithful action that seeks to displace an unjust status quo. It calls us to help each other stand. So we join Asaph, our psalmist, as he takes us deep into the community's true memory of who God is and what God does. Activity that goes far beyond the eye of the first six verses and even beyond the we of the covenant community and speaks to the creation and redemption of the entirety of the world. Clinton McCann writes, the memory of God's saving deeds in the past makes it possible for women and men of faith to embody the reign of God, even in the midst of circumstances that suggest that God does not reign. For out of the memory of the community of faith emerges hope. And that hope pushes us to act. To act as if we follow a God who is sovereign, a God who seeks justice and righteousness, and uses the gift of all our lives to do it. 
that vast potential of untapped transformative power that is waiting to be released. I watched that long day ago. I watched as peace slowly descended over my dancing daughter. Still held tight in her friend's embrace, and I watched as her friend helped her up. And I watched as my daughter regained her courage to face the challenge before her, being part of a team whose work was not finished. And I am mindful that she didn't get there on her own, but through the power of friendship and community. And in that, I hear the echoing words of Paul. For freedom Christ has set us free. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become servants to one another. For the whole law is summed up by a single commandment. You shall love your neighbors as yourself. Where is God, we ask? God is the impulse that sends us to seek justice, that leads us to live with kindness, that presses us to follow God's leading with humility and courage and strength. Lord, how long, we ask, as long as it takes for us to release the power of transformation that God plants in our communities, the power of truthful memory that leads us in faithfulness, grace, and compassion on roads of justice and equity and peace. And as we close this morning, I would use this prayer from Walter Brueggemann. Let us pray. In the midst of all the pushing and shoving among us, in the world and in the church, propelled by anxiety and acted as brutality, you have planted yourself in all your fidelity. You have placed yourself among us in steadfastness and abiding care, present in the day and alert in the night, making us all safe and noticed and cared for. So evidence your fidelity as a, to curb our anxiety, as to restrain our brutality, as to overcome our alienation. By your fidelity, renew us. Renew church, renew city, renew world. Give us the safety to love you fully, to love neighbor well, in glad obedience. Amen.